All right, so uh, this is our fourth session where hell plays into the t- title of the thing, sort of, in one way or another. Uh, but we are going to get into the expectations of an afterlife without hell. Now, I'm saying without hell because, just so you kind of know the ground rules here, I was trying to be pretty deliberate for the last three weeks in pointing out the fact that the word hell is is not a great choice to try to understand what the Bible says about it, about the issues of the Valley of Hinnom, about some of the other stuff. Now, we're going to have to look at other stuff. We're going to have to look at uh, the outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. We're going to have to look at the lake of fire and what seems to go on there. We're going to have to look at the tormentors. That sounds like fun. Uh, but And then we're going to also have to look at two very, very big concepts that I was uh, kind of worried about us being weary, too weary to jump into them tonight. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put those off until after next week. Next week we have Snap Talks or Snapchats, and I'm super excited about that. And it's going to give us a little bit of a break. But um, those those big concepts are judgment and eternity. And we're going to have to do kind of the same thing we did with the word studies to make sure that we're thinking properly about what the Bible actually says. And one of the, the lessons that's been reinforced in my mind is the necessity of, of uh, having a way to get meaning from the Scriptures. Uh, something that troubles me as a pastor is a lot of people g- get the meaning primarily through somebody telling them what it means. And I understand that. And it's great to have somebody tell you. There's a reason there's teachers. There's a reason that there's prophets and all this kind of stuff. But it falls short if it doesn't carry you into a relationship with the Lord where you can ask your own questions, you can hear your own answers, where the Lord can lead you in your own way. And it's not totally subjective. This Absolutely, this is a revelation of God. It's an inspired revelation of God. But not everything I've thought about it was the fruit of inspiration. <laughs> there were other times that I go, well, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. So that's why I want us to understand what it actually says, uh, looking at the language as best as, as we can, best as I can, which is not super uh, sophisticated, but it's there's a lot of tools out there. But I want to see what it says before we try to figure out what it means. And unfortunately, on a lot of concepts, we we have a meaning already. And then it's difficult to go back in and assess what it says uh, by virtue. And I think we've proved that of challenging the concept of hell a little bit. It was a little nerve wracking for some of us. So I do think we're a little bit weary. Uh, and so that's coming up, not next week, but the following week after that, we're going to look at the concepts of eternity and we're going to look at the concepts and the words that where we get our ideas of judgment. Cause it's really, really important. Cause uh, both of those things are they factor prominently into thoughts about the afterlife, okay? But tonight is more important than both of those word studies. So I I ran into something earlier. This will be, it's not really a review because I'm not reviewing it. I'm going back to it again. But I think most of you were here at one one point or another when I mentioned, uh, when we were looking at the Valley of Hinnom and the references to Hinnom in the Old Testament, those 12 references, uh, three of them, I think, were directly in the prophecies of Jeremiah toward the end of the prophet, uh, end of the book of Jeremiah. And so I want to start here, but I want us not just to try to discern what the prophecy says. I want to understand what God's purpose and the gift was re- that was revealed out of judgment in him. Because when we were looking at uh, Jesus using the word Gehenna, and it probably referring back or almost certainly referring back to the Valley of Hinnom, the Valley of Hinnom was a place that really was characterized very severely by judgment. There were some positive things in it when Josiah, or prior to that when Hezekiah, got in and did these reforms. But the place was so bad that the Lord couldn't relent on judgment. In other words, judgment had to come. If you remember, Josiah was going through these reforms. He was a very young king, and by the time he was like 13, 18 years old, he started clearing the land of the idols and clearing all that kind of stuff. And he asks the uh, wife of the priest to go before God. And God said, because of the purity of his heart, because he's doing everything for me, 
these judgments are not going to come to him during his reign. But I can't take them. I'm not taking them away. Not I can't. I'm not. I'm not taking them away. So Jeremiah was prophesying uh, at the end of, starting in the 13th year of, of Josiah's kingship, all the way up to the Babylonian captivity. And then we get here. So this is something we've looked at, but I want us to look at it with the purpose of understanding something super special about the heart of God. And, and, and I'm doing this so we have something to replace hell with. <laughs> something to replace our reliance on what we thought we understood, the pat answer of what hell is. Or more specifically, like I put in the text, the pat dualism, where the afterlife is just tension between or something, heaven and hell. And uh, you definitely want to go one place and avoid the other. That's an inadequate foundation for your and my expectations about the afterlife. And it's primarily inadequate because it doesn't take the most important thing about the afterlife into effect, into, into account. So here it is, Jeremiah. And now, therefore, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, he's talking about Jerusalem, whereof you say, it shall be delivered into the hands of the king of Babylon by the sword and by famine and by the pestilence. So he's talking about Jerusalem. And he's talking through the prophet, but now he's talking to the prophet about Jerusalem and the judgment that Jeremiah had been prophesying, which was true. Behold, I will gather them out of all the countries, whither I have driven them in mine anger, in my fury, and in great wrath. And I will bring them again unto this place, meaning Jerusalem, and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Now, the parts that I highlighted are the ones I'm going to go back and I'm going to kind of build a case for something. I want you to think about it with me. Uh, I mentioned that we were going to be looking at the concept of eternity. That bottom word down there, everlasting in blue, is olam. And we'll look at the definitions real briefly. But uh, first of all, Jerusalem was going into exile. There's no question about it. But then God interrupted Jeremiah's prophesying to speak to him and give him a piece of his heart, an assurance from his heart. And here it is. I will gather them out of all the countries whether I have driven them. And, and, and he drove them there in my anger, in my fury, and in my great wrath. Now, one of the concerns that some of us have talked about, and we've tried to be careful and not do this, and I, I know this is true, if you, if you attack or if you challenge the legitimacy of hell as it's thought about in the Western church for the last 400 years, 500 years, 600 years, something like that, even more than that, a little bit, but when it's really entrenched, people say, well, you're just soft. You're, you're, you, you know, you don't trust God's holiness. You, you can't trust, or you're, you're just, he's a wimp, whatever. No. Look, there's room in his dealings with us for anger, just like there was in Israel. There's rooms in his dealing in fury. I don't fully understand it, uh, because most of the time when you encounter fury, either in yourself, or I encounter it in myself, or anger, or wrath, when you encounter that, or it comes against you from another person, it is abusive, and it is self-centered, it's fear-based, and it's got all kinds of negative motives. And I think that's why the Scripture says that the wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. The vengeance of man doesn't work the righteousness of God, so the Lord said, vengeance is mine. But we can't make the mistake, we don't need to make the mistake, of just saying, well, the only way to get rid of this negative stereotype of uh, and this horrible dualism between hell and heaven is just to... Uh, you know, God's so nice, everything will be okay. No, that's not really adequate. It's not so much that it, that it paints the wrong picture of God, although it does. It's not adequate to stand up and face the evil in the world. 
it's not even adequate to stand up and face the cruddy stuff in our own lives that that has to be dealt with in some way or another. And so Israel did incur judgment, the judgment of exile. And God was not pleased with them. These things came out of those issues, anger, fury, and great wrath. But, and I will bring them again to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. The end of the judgment was not perpetual exile. The end of the judgment was not perpetual scattering. In the beginning, in the midst of the judgment, prior to the judgment, the heart of the Father was, the heart of Yahweh, was, I will bring them back. And look at what he says. I will bring them back again to this place. So who's going to bring them back? The Lord is. Okay. I will cause them to dwell safely. Who's going to do that? Their army? Their king? Maybe they'll be used, but ultimately, God's taken responsibility for this, right? That's what that means, I think. I will. I will cause them to dwell safely, and they shall be my people. We're going to see that repeated again in another verse in just a second. And I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. Now, what was the problem that led to the judgment from the anger, the fury, and the great wrath of God that was characterized by the history and the heritage of the Valley of Hinnom. What was the problem? Idol worship, they gave their hearts to other gods. They did not keep them for God. So God says, I am going to give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. We have a tendency, when we think about judgment, to think that judgment is like we see it in our deal, where uh, you do something bad and you're arrested, let's say. And then in that arrest, you have to pay a bond. And that bond is a surety that keeps you from running away, supposedly. And uh, or maybe you just have to stay arrested. And then if you get sentenced, you end up going to prison. And the the way you're kept from doing that stuff again is they lock you up in a small cell. They take away your freedom. That isn't how God does it. He gives us hearts, new ones, that don't act the way the one that got us on the wrong end of truth anyway in the first place. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's not the only place that it's talked about either. You know, uh, in a minute we're going to see another uh, thing that mentions the heart, but Ezekiel prophesied about the, there being a new heart. Hearts have taken out the hearts of stone, hearts of flesh, so on and so forth. Uh, and with the heart a man believes. You know, Jeremiah talked about the fact that our heart is deceitful. But this obviously is probably the answer to a deceitful heart, right? God given it to us. Okay. Forever for the good of them and their children after them. This is a big deal. It's a big plan. And it's a plan that came directly from the heart of the Father. Uh, and then I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them, but to do them good. And I will put my fear in their hearts. You think he means that new heart? I think so. I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. I will put fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Okay. I'm going to show you why we can't afford to go into all the word studies tonight. Are you coming up here? Okay. It, it probably is my rose-colored glasses. Okay. But I still don't see that God is mad at them. I see that in his anger, he is taking care of them. But I think a pure anger, um, based on some experiences I've had, not every, mm -hmm. as a parent, when I'm angry about something and can figure out why I'm angry at whatever it is, is the problem. I'm not angry with my child. I'm I, angry at I, the problem. I don't, I don't disagree with that. I don't, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna hold it against 
the possibility that God could be exasperated with us or disappointed or, you know, he said one time I was grieved that I made men. So all those emotions. But uh, in that situation you're describing, fundamental parenting requires that there be some emotional motivation to, to act. Otherwise, you ne- you neglect. And neglect is 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 terrible. Right. I'm not saying that anger is the problem. I'm saying I I can read this and see that he drove them, however he drove them, mm-hmm. because he was angry, mm-hmm. but that he didn't spew his anger at them, and right. that's what drove them. Right. Right. That the anger and the I actually read something today, which totally side me, but about um, anger and fire. <clears throat> and it being a purifying thing. Mm-hmm. And and so it's helping me shift my perspective of what anger and fury and wrath yeah. is, that it's not him saying, I'm punishing you because I'm angry. Right, right. It's I'm angry. No, I totally angry. agree with you. I, and I think it's a great point. That's why I was kind of mentioning if we've experienced that kind of anger or we've had it roll out of us, very often it's not pure like that. It's not for the good. It's all that. I mean, even it says there, look at that. I will bring them again unto this place and I will cause them to dwell safely that they shall be my people. I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them. For the good of them. That's the motive. That's the motive. God doesn't have to sacrifice his motives of good for you to recognize what needs to be done and what what uh, gets shown up in the light of judgment. And that's what we're going to talk about. it. So I, I agree with you 100%, Becky. All right, so here we go. There's an interesting deal. Now, this is, you see those uh, big words in there, forever and then everlast. So this is just a super quick, whoops, sorry, wrong way, a super quick word study. For is the Old Testament word kol. And properly, it means the whole, all, any, or given, or anything like that. And it's translated as all, altogether, any. And you'll see there's not a for in there, uh, but they'll become one on the second one, the word ever is the word yom. Now, this is an, uh, a, a primitive root, an old root, and it has to do with being hot. And it's been used and it's evolved into the language for centuries and centuries to talk about the hot part, meaning the day. And so if you look down at Genesis, their beginning first instance of the use of this is in one five, that the evening and the morning were a day. So what this is really saying is all days. All days. So let's back up just a second and see it. That they may fear me all the days. So the, 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 the motivating goal of the Father is to treat them in such a way that they may fear them, fear him all the days. Cool, huh? All right. And then the last one is uh, the word olam, which is one we're going to have to look at when we tackle the idea of eternity. But uh, olam properly means concealed, which is interesting because the root of the Hebrew, the primary Hebrew word that speaks of eternity is one that is concealed. And it's translated as another, uh, this one is an interesting point, vanishing point. What that means from what I can tell from the study is if you look at the uh, the vanishing point of a horizon, and that's your goal, uh, like if you're you know going across the desert or you're sailing or something, that's what that word is used to mean. Is the the point out there that pulls you in the in the direction that you're going? It sets your course. It's pretty cool, pretty cool. And then there's a time out of mind. It could be past or future, uh, eternity, of course. Um, just a whole bunch of stuff. So this is going to take quite a lot. There's a lot of stuff there. But you'll notice that this, so the structure down here at the bottom, Riley, I'm going to go over there if you can follow me, is the way, the way this thing works out is for ever or for never. Sometimes it's translated like that. So uh, you can imagine that when we get into the words for eternity, particularly olam, and then the, the three Greek words in the New Testament, aeon, aeonios, and adios, when we get into that, we're going to have the same kind of necessity to dig in and study quite a few examples that we did when we were looking at Hinnom and Hades and Tartarus and Shoal, because it's used quite a bit. It's not hard to discern, but it's, it's there, it's there to look at. So anyway, 
an everlasting covenant. One without, okay, so that's what that is. Now, here's the next passage out of Jeremiah. Back up just, just one chapter in our Bibles. This is still in the same basic dialogue that God is having with Jeremiah. And, and this is where the new covenant comes from. So behold, this reveals God's heart as it applies to Israel. Not just the return from Babylon, but after that return from Babylon, the establishing of a new covenant. I think this is where the heart comes from. This is all this kind of stuff. Behold, the day comes, says the Lord, comes, said the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So now you understand the contrast, right? There's a new covenant coming that is different than the covenant that was established through Moses when they were delivered from Egypt. Um, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. So his faithfulness is not the one that's at issue, right? It's ours. But this shall be a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will make it with the house of Israel. And we'll talk about that in just a second. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Maybe that's a part of the new heart that he's given us. This, this infusion of, this insertion of the truth, the revelation of who he is and what he is and his law into our hearts. I don't know exactly. Okay. I don't know. We're going to have to look at it, but into my inward parts, I'll write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this is the same thought. This new covenant is the same thought that was promised about even though they're going away to exile, and you said rightly, I'm going to bring them back. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, that's God's heart revealed toward Israel. And some could say, well, that's a covenant with Israel. What does that have to do with us? Well, this is Hebrews chapter 8. And this is taken virtually directly from the Septuagint version of Jeremiah. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for a second. For finding fault with him, he saith, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, do you see how Similar the lines are. I know you know this already. I'm just doing this so you know this is a quote of that. So this is Jeremiah's, uh, what the Lord spoke to him, being brought into the New Testament and into the, the New Covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the land to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. See how it's different? That's because there's some different translation going on between the Septuagint and the original Hebrew text. All right, anyway, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put laws, my laws in their mind. I will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful to their unrighteous, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. So now we have Jeremiah's promise of a new covenant transferred into the time after the resurrection of Jesus, right? When the writer of Hebrews, whoever that was, was explaining and writing. Now, what's before and what's after this? It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Chapter 1, chapter 2 is all about Jesus. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Uh, it's about Jesus and the order, you know, being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. When you jump into chapter 9, it's about a sacrifice made once for sin for all time. When you jump into chapter 10, it's about his body is now the veil. When you jump into 11, it's all about the faith that is fulfilled in him. And when you jump into 12, it gets down into our favorite verse, which is our God is a consuming fire. <laughs> and everything that comes with it. But the promise there even is amazing. We're being given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, worship the Lord because he's a consuming fire. And like you say, that consuming fire carries the same motive, I think. The motive of a father, the motive of God. All right, does that make sense? Yes, Dan, go ahead. I made a special slide for you. If I... Before you go to pass that. Yes, sure. <laughs> Not, yes, sir. Not to solve this, but just to make a point of meditation here. Mm -hmm. Verse 10 says, I will make this covenant with the house of Israel. Just keep that in your thoughts as we go through that. Yes, absolutely. 
It, it, it was already in my thoughts. Well, there you go. In the new covenant, that is Jesus' blood. So, <laughs> is it appropriate for us to, as we think about this, is it appropriate for us to say that this could have some bearing on us, or are we just appropriating it because it sounds fun? And I think it's a very good question. I think it's a very good meditation. But I also think there's an answer to it. So the thing that is the new covenant that we have learned in the New Testament that Jeremiah had no way to have an idea about, except prophetically as the Lord was speaking it, is this. So here it is, and it's, it's, it's available in all three of the Gospels, all three of the Synoptic Gospels, and it's available in one other place. We're going to look at it real quick. And when he had taken the cup and given that, he gave thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I think all of us understand that what Jesus was talking about is his upcoming crucifixion and the shedding of his blood on the cross. Right? Okay. In Mark, it reads this way. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So again, I don't think we're, I don't think we're appropriating something that was exclusively aimed at Israel. And then Luke says it even in a more aggressive way, a little bit, tiny bit. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So what I want you to understand, if, if I can say this properly, what we read in Jeremiah and what we read in Hebrews 8, those are words about the new covenant. Their words speaking about the new covenant. What we see and experience in Jesus' blood is the new covenant. The new covenant is the shed blood of the Lamb as if slain. It's the participation in that shed blood. And it, it, it's, uh, so I'm not trying to de emphasize the accuracy of Jeremiah 31, 31 and down, or of Hebrews 8, 12 and down, or 8, um, yeah, 12. What I am trying to do is to help us understand that the words on that page is not the covenant. Jesus is the covenant. Jesus is the covenant. This is eternal life, that they would know you, and Jesus, whom you sent. That's why I like the way it is there in Luke. This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Okay? So I want you to think about that a little bit. There is a distinction between the description, even when that description is a prophetically inspired reality, and I believe it is in Jeremiah 31. There is something behind the inspiration of those words. And that thing is the heart of God. Expressed, ultimately, in this new covenant. Remember what he said in the first Jeremiah passage? I'm going to make an everlasting, an olam covenant with them. So that they won't ever leave me, and I will never leave them. Jesus himself is that covenant in the expression of his blood. It's a big deal to think about. You've got to let it set in. And, and, and so do I. Now, okay, go ahead. So how many years passed between when Jeremiah spoke the words of the new covenant and when Jesus was actually born? Oh, gosh. When did uh, when they get back from the Babylonian captivity? Uh, four I think they were there for 70 years. It was about like 476 years or something along those lines. Yeah. 
Yeah. So about 500 years, about 500 years. Yeah. All right. Let's look at the next one. I don't want no, that's, it's, it's fortunate to be living on this side of that prophecy, huh? And this side of that fulfillment. And we should, we should, we should, that's actually a super good question and a super good point. So I'm going to come back to it in just a minute. Yes, there was some time in between it, but it was as sure as sure could be from the beginning, right? Because the mechanism to get that blood of the covenant into this world was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. I don't fully understand it. Before the foundation of the world? I don't know, a long time. A couple billion years if you ask some people. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So I, just to confirm that we are not presuming on something that is exclusively for Israel or for Judah. This is Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, while I feel, I don't feel any sense of of being compelled to replace the blessing on Israel. Because if we jump up to Romans chapter 9, let's say, uh, 9 or 10, 11, Paul says, hey, all Israel is going to be saved. There's something still going on in the heart of the Father. Matter of fact, I think the heart of the Father is greatly revealed towards Israel. Like you say, what does it mean to be angry? How do you treat the people you're angry with? When the Lord talked to me about the children of Israel before they were going across the, uh, uh, when they failed to get across the Jordan, he said, Larry, you have to let me, be angry with them. I said I was angry with them for a generation, but look how I took care of them. I protected them night and day. I kept them from their enemies. Their clothes didn't wear out. I fed them in a variety of ways. And and it took some time, right? A whole generation. A whole generation. So anyway, my point is, you can come on up front here. My point is, it's not a false appropriation to think that this stuff that Jeremiah said that Jesus eventually fulfilled belongs to us as well as to whatever. Yes, sir. So what is the context or where are you seeing from reading what we just read, how that has anything to do with anyone outside of Israel? Well, because Paul was writing to a bunch of Gentiles in Corinth. Thank you. Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually agree with all this stuff. <laughs> I, just, I just want to clarify. I think I was too obscure in my early. Okay, comments. yeah, go ahead. So I wasn't differentiating and saying this isn't the covenant for all of us and the believers. I'm just saying that might be a point that in the Hebrews verse and in the Jeremiah verse, and this I have an obscure opinion that is not mainstream is that I think there may actually be an additional covenant that God specifically does with the house of Israel at a later point in time. Because we don't see all those actions that it says are going to happen. Mm-hmm. We do not see that in the nation of Israel. Yeah, we certainly didn't show up and now. So I just hold open that those two verses might be referring to a different covenant that's in Israel only. 100%, this is an everybody, we all get this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm complete agreement on all that. And the, the only other little nuance yeah. point that I throw in there is I do think Paul makes an argument in the in Romans there towards 9 mm-hmm. or so that hey I'm I'm a, ch- a son of Benjamin, you know, yeah. in that way. And so th- what the Lord is doing it's not that it, it's certainly not showing up the way it's going to show up in the end if if yeah. If God's going right. to keep that promise. And I think promise. Paul kind of takes both identities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. But I right. say it's an interesting point that I it, it may be an obscure idea that so, 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 so here's the thing. It, what does it hurt if we take Dan's counsel and we leave open the possibility that God's going to be able to bring Israel into an awareness of Him? Right. And that doesn't according take to anything us. away from these verses. At right. All. No. 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 I get it. I get it. So this, right. I'm I'm just using your opinion to make my point later. Yeah. 
because I know what it is. No, see, there, it, there's nothing. We don't have to. It's not a hurt. We don't have to. We don't have to go. Well, Lord, you have to do it this way, or you have to do it that way. No, no. He could still hold his love for Israel in his heart. Okay. All right. I agree. I, I agree totally. Okay. So, uh, Ronnie, did I, I? I answered your question directly. Was it sufficient? Paul was writing to almost for sure, mostly Gentiles in Corinth. Uh-huh. This is the cup of my new covenant. He also said, I received this from the Lord, uh, you know, by way of revelation. He wasn't speaking just out of the history of the other apostles and men. Okay? So hang on a second. Yeah. All right. Now, I used this symbol a long time ago. And I used it at every one of these messages, remember at the beginning of the message? Because I wanted to review. This isn't review. This is the main part of the story. Now we're going to have to look at what it means eternal. We're going to have to look at what judgment means. We are in a position where we can, I think, without doing violence to the scripture and without being naive and without being Pollyannish, we can reject the sort of common dualistic view of heaven and hell being the way things get resolved. You might have to listen to a couple of the previous ones you guys were gone for. The reason we can do that, the reason I want you to know you've got permission to ask these questions, to think differently about it, is that. Because he whose blood is the covenant that was promised in the same context of bringing the people back from exile, He whose blood is the new covenant is now seated and ruling from heaven. Right now. Right now. And not only what he did when he came, what he's doing today and what he'll do tomorrow, not only what the Spirit did in response to being sent as the promise, what was that? I never even thought of this before. But the promise of the Father. Well, what part of that promise might reflect what He promised in the New Covenant? Or what part of that promise might be what was reflected when I will put a new heart in them? I will bring it back. Isn't that what the Holy Spirit does? We're living in the fulfillment, the execution of that promise, even though a lot of years pass. You and I are living in the execution of that promise because the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is ruling and reigning right now until, until. The new covenant is the government of the age to come. It's the government of this age, and it's the government of the age to come. Remember what we're talking about. Upon what do we have a right to base our expectations of afterlife if Larry has cruelly and brutally taken away our comfortable dichotomy between hell and heaven. This is a really big verse. I want you to to hear this. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end when he will hand over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he's abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it's evident that he accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. The God that is going to be all in all is the one that interrupted Jeremiah's prophecy and lament to say, you say rightly that this city and this nation is going to go away to Babylon and they're going to be scattered by pestilence and by famine and by sword. But I 
I'm going to bring them back. And I'm going to give them a new heart for their good. So they'll never leave me again. Now, what we're thinking about when we contemplate the afterlife is how do you get from the bizarre, creepy, crummy culture, society, and personal disciplines and strengths that we have or lack, how do you get from here to something that will last forever? Well, you probably need a new heart. You probably need some transformational change. But God says, I'm doing that. And he makes unequivocal promises. I'm going to be their God. Do you know that we couldn't do anything to make him say that? By virtue of being God, (laughs) he doesn't have to be our God. But he is. And he's the one that declared we're his people. He didn't declare that in response to you or me having a good day. He declared that out of his own heart. We'll see that in just a second. So this is what we're looking at. The God that's going to be all in all is the same one who created. He created with this purpose in mind. He's the same one that came down and took on the role of redemption. Jesus was not an afterthought. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He was the one in whose image we are predestined to be conformed before the foundation of the world. Now, if this idea, backed by the authority and the power and the oomph and the love and the fire of God has been the original idea, then doesn't it make sense that we can rest a certain amount of comfort in it being the closing idea as well? I mean, like that passage we just looked at says that he's going to reign until all his enemies are put under his feet and death's the last one. What do you think the over-under is that Jesus is going to win? That his enemies are really going to all be defeated? I'd bet it all. It might take a while. right? He's reigning. He's here. This is what we started with with the whole love thing. But this is what, this is the foundation upon which, it's the only foundation. It's not the words of the covenant printed on the page. It's the heart behind the words that gave his son and shed his blood and raised him from the dead. It does say God raised him from the dead too. We've done an injustice to the relational realities of this by just trying to, and I'm as guilty as the next guy, turn them into doctrine. They've never been a doctrine. The doctrine came way later. The doctrine is about what's real. What's real is the love that created, the love that redeemed, the love that is reigning now, the fire that is reigning now, the spirit that is reigning now, the light that is reigning now. That thing Jesus is sitting on is called, in Hebrews, the throne of grace. That's weird, but cool. When I think of a throne and when you think of a throne, we almost always think of some kind of judgment-related thing. It is. It's a throne of grace. This very God, the God of spirit, fire, light, love, and love, the God who is the vehicle and the mechanism and the heart and the eyes of judgment, the one that is the heart of cleansing, the one whose whose blood is the covenant, by his own new covenant that he's had in his heart at least since the days of Jeremiah. And you know it was before that, right? The promise was he will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. That was all the way to Eve. He is our afterlife. This is eternal life. This is your afterlife. To know God, 
to know you, Jesus says. And just three verses before that, because that's in uh, John 17, 3, three verses before that, he says, uh, Father, that's how he's talking about it. He's praying to the Father. He said, so this is eternal life, to know you and Jesus whom you sent. So I would say to us, on what should we build our expectations of the afterlife with all its complexities of judgment and of fire and of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth and uh, invitations to come and behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me and all the seeming opposing things. We should base it on him and what we know of him, what we've learned of him and what we're experience of him, experiencing of him today. So I have a closing thought. Who has the will and the power to shape our afterlife? Now, how many of you have ever had a time in your church life where it felt like it was your will that was the determining factor? Now, I... I'm not saying we don't have a choice to make. I'm not saying we don't have to believe. I'm just saying, God said, I'm going to give you a new heart. And I'm going to give you one way, one way. So, and, 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 and I just want to be clear. Is there anybody, if you have said yes, I believe in you, Jesus. I don't care how uh, long ago that was or whatever, then we are people that don't need to concern ourselves at all about being on, on, on the other side of our own wills. And however imperfectly we walk this out, that decision that you responded to, that invitation that you responded to, we are securely in the midst of the plan that God's got here. Here's the one. John 17, 25, look at what it says. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known. The last line in Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 is a commitment to his Father about making his name known, not just to the disciples, not just to the Israelites, but if you remember back in John 20, I don't pray for these alone, but I pray for those that will believe on me from their name. That applies to you and me. He will. And then this one, Ephesians. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. This is our father. This is the one that created. This is the one that created through Jesus. This is, you know, this is the God who was speaking to Jeremiah and said, I'm going to bring everybody back. And, and anyway, <laughs> we'll get to that later. Uh, to Jesus Christ himself, according to the kind intention of what? Some external constraint? Some moral necessity? No. His will. Who has the will to shape our afterlife? He does. And he is. And he will. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood. That blood of the new covenant. That blood that is the new covenant. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. We probably could understand grace better if we realized that it was in conjunction with these kind of eternally existent commitments and promises. It's not a reaction to the fall. Which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. According to his kind intentions, which he purposed in him, with a view to, now this is the future, this is what connects all this to our future. If we take his side and give him place and trust in his heart and his motive, we can build our expectation about the future on it. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. An administration suitable to the fullness of time. 
That's why I don't think that it's asking too much or being too spurious to think that this can be the basis for our hope in the future. (laughs) There comes our goat. All right. The summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Pretty wide scope there. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose. Whose purpose? His purpose. Where does his purpose come from? It comes from his heart and his mind. Bless you guys. Glad you're back. Having been predestined according to his purpose. And where do these purposes come from? Who works all things after the counsel of his will. We don't have to go searching out where he got his degree. We don't have to look at the influence of his professors. We don't have to understand the culture that influenced him when he was young. All this comes from the heart that has been wide open revealed, that said, in my wrath, in my fierce anger, in my uh, fury, I'm still going to bring him back. I don't fully understand it all. I don't understand how it all works, but I hear what he's saying, and I believe it. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Okay. The point is this, if I need to restate the obvious. It's okay for us to challenge concepts like hell, if there's a reason to do it. It's okay for us to uh, take the time to explore the idea of the words that speak of everlasting and eternity. It's okay for us to, to dig in and think about judgment. It doesn't mean we have to dismiss it. It doesn't mean we're being irresponsible. It doesn't mean anything. But none of those things, all we're going to discover if we absolutely get to the bottom of the truth about eternity and about judgment and about fire and about every single other thing, we're going to get to the fact that God's going to be all in all and that he's been operating under the same motive from the beginning. It's a motive of love. He's not reacting to things. He had a plan before the foundation of the world that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. And he's working that plan out in our lives. And he has the power and the will and the patience to take the time, even if it's lots of years. And he has the power and the will and the patience to give us hearts exchanges if that's what it takes. And apparently it does. New heart, new mind, all this kind of stuff. Huh? New blood. So... Anyway, uh, any thoughts or questions or anything? Zoomer, sorry we lost you for a few minutes. Okay. I never know whether that's a good sign or bad sign. Father, thank you for revealing in the most dire of times to the prophet Jeremiah and through him to us, thank you for revealing your heart to rescue us all to rescue your people and those of us that would believe through those that knew Jesus, that we would know him, that he would live in our hearts. So I thank you, Lord. And as we move forward and we look at judgment, as we move forward and we look at the the nature of eternity and what the Bible reveals about that, there's nothing we're going to learn that's going to be outside the grace that is in your heart toward us. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name.